Scripture lesson this morning, Genesis chapter 44. Then he commanded the one of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say, He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah drew near to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, 
you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for the word that you have sent us, that you've given to us, even in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And now may your word come powerfully to us by your Holy Spirit, that you would direct us in our faith to see Christ more clearly this day. We ask in his name. Amen. While you might not think so at first glance, the the case can be made that Genesis 44 is a Christmas story. That what we have pictured and demonstrated in this text foreshadows a significant theme that at the heart of our celebration this day. And you might wonder how that can be given what you just heard of all that transpired. But when we look a bit more closely and listen a bit more carefully, the announcement of the birth of Christ is echoed here. Well, how did we get here? What happened in the previous chapter? Well, there was a great party. There was lots of food and plenty of wine and merriment was had by all who attended, which maybe sounds more like a Christmas text. Joseph hosted his 11 brothers in his home. He treated them very differently than on their first trip. But all of this is part of Joseph's elaborate test, even as he indicated back in chapter 42, verses 15 and 16. We're now in the second part of what is really one large section of the narrative, chapters 43 to 44. We're continuing the story. Last week we noted that Joseph is already setting Benjamin apart, setting up his second test of the brothers, that by exalting Benjamin, calling him my son, announcing blessing upon him and giving him five times the food portions of the other brothers, Joseph is essentially placing his younger brother in the same position that he held 22 years before, in relation to his father Jacob. Benjamin is the favored son. Will that inspire hatred and jealousy? How will they react? Well, the test comes in earnest here in chapter 44. And in this chapter, we'll continue to see more parallels between Joseph's experience in chapter 37 and Benjamin's, as well as parallels to the actions of the other brothers. This is a beautiful and moving story masterfully written and not surprisingly reflects some of the most profound theology taught in all the Bible. In this text, we see Jesus. We see a Savior and King, and we see the life that He's called us to as His followers, and hopefully it will leave a lasting impression. For our purposes this morning, we'll break up the text into four sections centered upon the theme of the test. And in verses 1 through 5, we observe the test planned. 
Joseph gives instructions to the one over his house, the head servant that we are introduced to in chapter 43, telling him to fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry, providing them with an abundance of bread. Again, he's to put the silver they brought uh, to pay for the food in the mouth of each man's sack, which reminds us of chapter 42 and 25, when the men were ready to depart for Canaan after their first trip to Egypt for food. But then Joseph orders something else. Joseph's cup, his silver cup, is to be placed in the youngest in Benjamin's sack along with his money for the grain. And the servant did what Joseph told him to do. Now, the mention of silver is interesting. The money was silver. And where you may read money in the English translations, it's more literally silver. And Joseph's cup is silver. Where does silver first come into play in the Joseph story? Well, back in chapter 37 and verse 28, when Joseph is sold for 20 pieces of silver. Fascinatingly, one scholar has pointed out that in chapters 42 to 45, there are 20 references to silver. And I realize a detail like that might not make you more patient with your children. But I do hope it gives you a greater appreciation for the depths of detail in which the Bible is written by men inspired by the Holy Spirit and how the paralleling of the brother's experience with Joseph goes, into, goes to such lengths on a literary level. Then in verse 3 we read, As soon as it was morning light. What's that mean? Well, it's dawn. It's a new day. And the dawning of the day is a time of resurrection, a time of deliverance, and a time of judgment. This isn't the first dawn episode we've encountered in Genesis. Joseph hosted his feast at high noon the day before, and now apparently they're headed home the very next day as soon as it was light. The brothers are still referred to as the men, and they're sent away with their donkeys. As far as they're concerned, things are going great. The trip has gone smoothly, better than they could have ever expected, but little did they know that the hardest part was still in front of them. When they had only gone a short distance from the city, Joseph ordered his servant to go after the men and deliver this message. Why have you repaid evil for good? And accused them of stealing Joseph's cup. Remember that a cup is uh, related to kingly rule. And so for them to steal the cup would be an attack on Joseph's authority. Uh, we can even compare the cup here with Joseph's robe back in chapter 37. The mention that it's a cup of divination is interesting. Uh, this doesn't mean that Joseph practiced divination, which in the ancient world would have involved dropping oil into a cup of water and then making determinations about things based on what the oil did. That was one way of divining things. Joseph didn't need the cup to divine the future. You know, he, he's the master of dreams already. But the use of the cup further accentuates his Egyptian identity and the ruse that he's playing on his brothers. Interestingly enough, the last time this word divination um, is found in Genesis is in relation to Laban in chapter 30 and verse 27. It's a word that has the Hebrew word um, for the, the word, the Hebrew root for the word serpent. So Laban was playing the part of the serpent in relation to Jacob. He was attacking the seed. Here, in a, kind of an interesting twist of things, Joseph is attacking Benjamin the seed for the sake of the test. And by giving Benjamin the cup, or at least making it look like Benjamin, was the one who stole the cup from Joseph's table, the very cup that Joseph drank from at their feast, the invocation of what the servant is to say, as Joseph instructs in verse 5, 
then it looks like Benjamin is the one trying to usurp Joseph's position, that he wants to be the new dream master. So Joseph is intentionally making Benjamin look bad. He's setting things up so that the brothers are brought to a point parallel to the scenario 22 years before when he was the favored son. So the plan is set. And in verses 6 to 13, we see the test initiated. Action is taken so that the trap was set in verses 1 through 5. Now the trap is sprung. Joseph's head man overtakes the brothers a short distance from the city and delivers the message. And in verses 7 to 8, the brothers basically plead their innocence and call down a curse upon themselves if they've done such a thing. You know, the logic of their reply is pretty sound, basically contending that it doesn't make any sense that they would have come back all this way to pay the money back, only then to steal from Joseph's house. You know, thieves don't do that sort of thing. Then notice the conditions the brothers set in verse 9. Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. So the death penalty for the man caught with it, and slavery for the rest. This may be an intentional overstatement on their part because they're so sure of their innocence. But notice some of the thematic parallels. The cup is associated with Joseph, particularly his prophecy and rule. And to steal this cup is to symbolically steal Joseph, which they basically did years before. The penalty for man-stealing is death, if we compare it with Exodus 21. So even though they don't realize it, their oath is appropriate. But also their vow to be slaves to the steward means that they would become slaves of a slave. The word for servant and slave is the same. To be a slave of a slave is what? What's well, the curse of Canaan? Ham tried to rob Noah of his authority. They've done something similar and are now receiving the punishment of the Canaanites. The land of Canaan is even mentioned in verse 8. Joseph Stewart appears to agree to their terms, but changes the conditions in verse 10. Don't miss that. Let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent. What's that setting up? How is Joseph maneuvering the situation? That ten brothers can go home and only one stay behind and be a slave. Joseph is arranging it so that the brothers can have an out and escape if they choose to take it. In verse 11, each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground and each man opened his sack. They're ready to prove their innocence. And appreciate the narrative drama, the, the tension that's created in verse 12. You know, don't, don't read it too quickly. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. See, this echoes the seating arrangement at the feast. But picture the scene. The steward goes to Reuben and the sack at his feet and looks in. No silver cup is found. Then he goes to Simeon's sack and looks in. No cup. Then to Levi, no cup. And so he goes from brother to brother and sack to sack. He gets to the tenth brother, still no cup. And just when they're about to breathe a sigh of relief that their innocence is proven, the cup is found in Benjamin's sack. The brothers are left to wonder whether Benjamin really did this and didn't tell them. As far as they can tell, Benjamin is guilty. Benjamin stole the cup. That's the obvious explanation and conclusion to be reached. As a bit of an aside, it's interesting to note that this search has some similarities to Laban's search for his household idols back in chapter 31. And there he searched Rachel's tent last, and of course, Rachel is Benjamin's mother. Here, though, the trick, the deception, is on those being searched 
versus the searcher in Laban's case. But notice the all-important implication of their reaction. Verse 13. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. This is another step in the right direction for the repentance of the brothers. They tore their clothes. This parallels their ruining of Joseph's robe in 37-33. An eye for an eye is taking place. But it also parallels Jacob tearing his garments in 37-34, mourning what had befallen them. They didn't rend their garments at Joseph's death, but now they do. Now they're acting like their father Jacob and undergoing this symbolic death. And then notice, every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. That's also significant. All of the brothers stay together. They don't split up. They don't just send Benjamin with the steward, which was all that was required. No, they exemplify unity and solidarity on Benjamin's behalf. They don't abandon him to become a slave on his own. See, we're beginning to see the effects of Joseph's testing upon them. But the crucial and climactic point of of testing is yet to come from Joseph himself in the next section, the test given in verses 14 to 17. Now, immediately notice how the men are described. Judah and his brothers. Their family and Judah is the leader. And we saw his emergence as the leader in the last chapter, and he continues to play that role here. They return to Joseph's house. He was still there. They fall before him on the ground, bowing to him now for a third time. Joseph continues to play his role to perfection. What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And although they perceive Joseph to be saying one thing, he really is speaking the truth. He is a diviner. He does know the future because God has revealed it to him. They cannot escape Joseph's knowledge, which comes from God, which by implication means they cannot escape from God. And Judas' response in verse 16 reflects that, doesn't it? What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. All Judah can do is beg for mercy. He knows that it's impossible for them to prove their innocence. And even though he's sure they're not guilty of stealing the cup and and the silver, he confesses their guilt from years ago to Joseph. God has found out the guilt. The word found or find is used three times in this section and four times in the previous section. Just as they began to recognize what God was doing to them back in chapter 42 and 28, asking, what has God done to us? So now they're, they're, they're fully coming to grips with their guilt in relation to Joseph all those years ago. Judah makes the connection to that event and what's happening to them now. And remember, it was Judah who led the brothers to sell Joseph into slavery. And now it's Judah leading the brothers to confess their guilt. Then Judah states, Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. Judah and his brothers are in this together. They're not going to leave Benjamin there alone. But now in verse 17, Joseph brings the test to the tipping point. In response to Judah's offer for all of them to become a slave, Joseph replies, Far be it from me that I should do so. Essentially, that would be a desecration. That wouldn't be just. No, I'm not going to enslave you all. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. Only the man who tried to steal my authority shall be my slave. 
But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Again, Joseph is giving them a way out, an escape. Uh, Benjamin himself is the final test. They can abandon him, leave him unprotected, give him into slavery, just as they did to Joseph. Will they repeat their actions from over 22 years ago? Well, again, it's fitting that Judah is the one who replies, who acts as the spokesman for the brothers to Joseph, having been the ringleader in the actions that led to Joseph's enslavement. And in verses 18 to 34, the test passed, we have the longest speech given in the book of Genesis and what may arguably be the climax of the entire book. Now, a couple of things to note about the speech. First, Judah spends most of the time quoting other people. Joseph, his brothers, his father, and one time himself speaking to his father. Second, the repetition of words is significant. Fathers use some 14 times, brother five times, boy or lad seven times, Lord, referring to Joseph, seven times, and your or his servants 12 times. What does this indicate? Well, in the first place, that the Lord-servant relationship between Joseph and his brothers that they initially rejected when he was exalted by Jacob is now brought to a climactic point in which they're willing to submit themselves to him. And in the second place, the family love and solidarity that has been missing for so long has been restored. The brothers are and act like the sons of Jacob, caring for the well-being of their brother and father. Let's consider several more aspects of Judah's speech, which will basically divide into three sections. In verse 18, it literally says that Judah drew near to Joseph. So he's approaching Joseph for the purpose of intercession. And he addresses Joseph in similar fashion to Abraham, approaching and pleading with the Lord in Genesis 18 on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. Judah says that Joseph is like Pharaoh himself. He recognizes Joseph's power, authority, and status. And then in verses 19 and 23, he basically recounts the circumstances related to the first test that Joseph placed upon them. The question asked and the answer is given and so forth. But notice a couple of things, that's, a couple of things that Judah reveals. In verse 20, he refers to Benjamin as the child of Jacob's old age. Now, where have we heard that before? Well, back in chapter 37 and verse 3 in relation to Joseph. But Joseph wasn't born to Jacob in his old age, so what does it mean? Well, we need to go back to Genesis 21-2 where we read, And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. And then in verse 7, Sarah declares, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Now, Isaac was truly a son of Abraham's old age. But he was also the promised son, the, the true son, the seed child. And what the writer wants us to do is make connections between Abraham Isaac and Israel Joseph. More specifically, that Joseph should remind us of Isaac. How so? Joseph is the seed born from a barren mother. He is the seed child, just like Isaac was. But now this language takes on another level of significance in relation to Benjamin, who was born to Jacob in his literal old age, but also that Benjamin has become Joseph's replacement who is presumed dead. Benjamin alone is left of Rachel's children and is beloved of Jacob. What's Judah confessing and revealing here? He shows and understands and sympathizes with his father's love and preference for one of his brothers. He no longer resents this. 
And Joseph listens to this. He hears this change in Judah's perspective and thinking. The threat of death for Jacob, should Benjamin leave him, is mentioned. And the first of four references to Jacob's possible death is made in Judah's speech. And Judah makes it clear that the only reason they brought Benjamin was because Joseph had ordered it. Otherwise, they had no intention of putting Benjamin at risk. So what are some particular aspects of the second part of Judah's speech in verses 24 to 29 that we should hear? Well, we're familiar with all that Judah recounts because, well, we've heard it before in chapter 42. But this is all new to Joseph. He's hearing it for the first time. What does Joseph learn? It was Jacob who sent them for more food. And Joseph's instruction regarding Benjamin were clearly relayed to Jacob. His presence was necessary for them to have an audience with Joseph again. Then notice what Judah recounts of of Jacob's words. You know that my wife bore me two sons. So, so Rachel has the priority place. Again, she's the queen. She is Jacob's wife, and she bore Jacob two sons. Verse 28. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. The image of Joseph's torn robe is still fresh on Jacob's mind after 22 years. Jacob's sorrow and grief over Joseph's death are still very real. Then in verse 29, Jacob's real fears related to Benjamin are relayed. If some harm would befall Benjamin, then Jacob's gray hairs would be brought down to Sheol to the grave. Benjamin has replaced Joseph as the heir apparent. As one pastor puts it, to lose Benjamin would be a loss that would be beyond words, not only in losing a son, which is devastating enough, but also the covenant blessing given to Abraham through Isaac to Jacob Israel. Judah seems to understand and accept the importance of Benjamin in this plan. From all the history that they have thus far, this is the obvious, this is the obvious place it is going. How could they know that they would not have the blessing given to them? There were sons before them who did not receive it, their uncle Esau being the prime example. But Judah has accepted the special calling of Benjamin, is submitting to it, and understands the love of his father for his younger brother. Well, that brings us to the third part of Judah's speech in verses 30 to 34. And notice how Jacob's life, the life of Israel, is bound up in the life of Benjamin, the covenant seed. Judah's not just recounting an old man's sentiment, but a covenant reality. Joseph is dead. He hasn't been resurrected as far as Jacob knows. Therefore, Benjamin is the promised seed through the barren wife. He's the the miracle boy through whom the covenant promises will continue. But if he dies, Israel, as a people, will die, at least from their limited perspective. Rachel is dead by this point. Jacob can't have any more children by his wife. If Benjamin dies, it invariably would cause Israel's heart to break and bring about his death. But it would seemingly bring an end to what Jacob perceived to be God's promises and plans. Benjamin is the son Jacob would pass the mission on to, one chosen son to another. If Benjamin dies, Jacob can't do that. So what does Judah propose in verses 32 to 33? What does Judah reveal to Joseph? How does Judah pass the test? Judah had become a pledge, a surety for his brother Benjamin. He promised to be his guardian, to protect him. Judah's words of commitment are being put to the test, and he isn't backing down or backing out of his agreement. No, he's proving his love for his brother. His love for Benjamin mirrors his father's love for Benjamin. 
Judah is willing to lay down his life for his brother. Verse 33. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. Judah is willing to be Benjamin's substitute, to die in Benjamin's place. He offers to become a slave so that Benjamin may be set free. Recall that this is the heart of what it means to be a king. A king is willing to die for his people. Judah passes the test. Then the final words of Judah's speech in verse 34. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Judah's love for his brother is evident. He doesn't want to witness again what his father experienced 22 years before at the death of Joseph. As one writer puts it, instead of causing their father more sorrow, the brothers were now weighed down by his grief. Instead of abandoning a son of Rachel as they had done before, one of them stepped forward to sacrifice himself in place of Rachel's son. And in these words, in this expression of love for Jacob and Benjamin, Joseph now knows how his brothers would treat him. As Jesus taught in Matthew 25, 40. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. What Judah has done for Benjamin, he has done for Joseph. It counts toward him. And Judah pictures Jesus, doesn't he? You, you can't possibly miss it. The Holy Spirit won't let you. It's as if he's cranked up the volume on the speaker so it comes through loud and clear. Judah pictures Jesus and still more the instruction Jesus gave to the disciples in John 15. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus goes on to call his disciples his friends and just a short time before speaking these words, he'd washed their feet and given them a new commandment that they love one another as he had loved them. And the Apostle John applies this principle in his first letter, instructing the churches. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. As Judah was compelled by his love for his father Jacob and the promise by which he bound himself to give his life for Benjamin, so Jesus was compelled by his love for his heavenly father and the eternal promises that led him from the manger to the cross. And as Jesus committed himself to this life, and mission of love, so are we as his followers called to the same mission to go and pour out our lives on behalf of the world. Listen again to Jesus' words in the fuller context, which we've heard year after year on Monday, Thursday. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call your servants, call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father. I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. We've been made friends, not slaves. We've been set free from slavery to sin and have been given new life and joy and we are to model that for the world. So what does that look like? What does it involve? What are some principles of this that come to bear on our lives? Well, first, 
Our life of prayer should be marked by intercession on behalf of others. Judah interceded on behalf of Benjamin. Jesus intercedes on behalf of his disciples, his bride, his church, and his friends. He did so beautifully in his prayer in John 17 and continues to do so. Our praying life ought to have the mark of kingship, the mark of sacrifice about it. Of course, this doesn't mean it's, it's wrong to pray for yourself. There's certainly a biblical precedent for doing, doing so. But, but are you regularly praying for others? And not just your immediate family, such as spouse and children, but also your church family. Are you regularly praying for one another? But even more, are you praying for the greater work of the kingdom in the world, for missionaries and ministries that you know about? Are you praying for these people with your children so they have a wider view of God's work in the world? Prayer itself takes sacrifice, takes self-denial. It's so much easier to do other things than to pray. So easy for us to make excuses not to take the time to intercede on behalf of others but we do so to the detriment of our own souls and the cause of Christ in the world. Second, a sacrificial spirit such as displayed, such as displayed by Judah leads to true unity. When he finally came to grips with the fact that his calling was different from Benjamin's, when he was willing to submit himself to the reality that Benjamin was favored, though younger, then he was able to lead his brothers to be unified again. Now, if your aims are self-seeking, if you become upset when someone receives special treatment that you think you deserve, or you're upset by someone else's success or the Lord's blessing another in a way that you might have hoped or prayed for, there can't be unity if you're jealous or embittered about the circumstances. Jealousy and bitterness never, ever lead to unity, but to division and conflict. Faith, a sacrificial kingly faith, recognizes that God's plan, His story for you, is not the same as someone else's. And that you must exercise a true contentment with what the Lord brings to pass. You should rejoice in the blessings and successes of others. Now, that's even true of us on a corporate level as a church. Rejoicing in how the Lord is using other churches, whether within the CREC or in other denominations, to extend the reaches of His kingdom throughout the world. The very things that we pray for each week in our corporate prayer of intercession should should run down into our thinking and praying lives the other six days of the week. And then finally, we need to recognize that a kingly sacrificial spirit won't necessarily be expressed by any of us in some great moment of sacrifice, but rather in the small mundane sacrifices that we're called to each and every day. The life of sacrifice that Jesus calls us to isn't just a nice idea to think about but a life that involves real flesh and blood people. Sacrifices of your time and attention, of little people pulling at your clothes, of needing this or that done for them, your wife needing to talk with you, or just a helping hand after a stressful day of attempting to manage the house, um, school, and a dozen other things. Of course, this extends to other friends and family, particularly the church, but, but don't lose sight of the kingly love that you're called to display each and every day. Your spouse and children, or your parents, brothers and sisters, are the closest friends that you daily come into contact with. And Jesus says that there's no greater love than to lay down your life for them. He has shown us mercy that was undeserved and laid down His life for us. So let us follow His pattern in our love for one another and the world. 
And for him, that began at Christmas, at his incarnation. The greater Judah making himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And to what did that lead? The cross. And to what did that lead? Exaltation. Demonstrated in the resurrection and ascension. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The wise men will come seeking he who is born the king of the Jews. But it's the birth of Christ, the child in the manger, where the first step in Jesus becoming the king of kings is displayed. Here is God the Father's love for the world demonstrated in the giving of the gift of his son. Here is God the Holy Spirit's love displayed in causing the Virgin Mary to conceive and bear this son. Here is God the Son's love displayed in becoming the man who would save us from our sins. The king willing to be born in order to sacrifice himself for his people. Let us pray. Most merciful God, who has so loved the world as to give your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, vouchsafe to us, we humbly pray, the precious gift of faith, whereby we may know that the Son of God is come, and being always rooted and grounded in the mystery of the Word made flesh, may have power to overcome the world and gain the blessing of immortality. Through the same incarnate Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, ever one God, world without end. Amen.